0: Australia gets serious about space, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The 68th International Astronautical Congress just wrapped up in Adelaide, Australia. We'll talk with Jason Davis about the revised plans Elon Musk announced there for putting hundreds of people on Mars by the mid-2020s. Then we'll talk with the man who headed the IAC effort. Brett Biddington will also tell us about the Australian government's imminent creation of its first national space agency. Bruce Betts will tell us where and when we can chase the next decade or so's total eclipses in this week's What's Up, and he's got a really easy space trivia question for you this time. Jason Davis is the Planetary Society's digital editor who follows space developments around the world. Jason, it's still an audacious plan that uh, Elon uh, Musk provided more details of uh, at the IAC, the um, International Astronautical uh, Congress last week. I'm a little disappointed that the rocket now, the so called BFR, will now be shorter than a Saturn V.
1: Yeah, come on, Elon. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can't do 111 meters. You stop short at 106. I mean, I, I just feel like we're not trying anymore here. Well, just you know? Put a
0: big tower or flagpole <laughs> on top of that or something. An antenna, right? maybe.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay, so I've already given away the code name for the rocket, BFR which we cannot actually say on the radio.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll call it the – I hear some other people call it the big falcon rocket. So, um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll just go with that. We'll go with that.
0: <laughs> it's a big falcon rocket. Yeah, that's, yes. uh, we'll go with that. All right, tell us, what, what has he revealed about this system and when it might actually lift off?
1: Yeah. So this is, uh, an evolving concept. And, um, you know, that's not surprising. That happens for any rocket system. But, uh, essentially it's, uh, Musk revealed this slimmed down concept. When I say slimmed down, we should specify this is still a gigantic rocket. Um, oh, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's hardly, uh, the Falcon 9. It's, it's slightly scaled down, uh, uses less engines. Uh, before it had like 42 engines uh, now it's only going to have 31 engines looks like they, they've thought about the concept a little bit more and added a few more details to it you mentioned the date that it would it would fly uh, they're still aiming for Mars landings on 2022 in 2022 that would be a cargo ship of some kind or two cargo ships and then they would try again in 2024 which would be the the next time the launch window aligns you know so that we can um, every two years we can send stuff to Mars and in 2024 two ships uh, ships would be actually crude, meaning in Elon Musk's timeline, um, humans could be walking on Mars in, in just seven years. Still pretty uh, aspirational, um, but that's what they're going with for now.
0: And we're still talking about 100 people riding up in the nose of this thing?
1: yeah it's still um this giant colonial transporter ship that can hold up to a hundred people. Um, they had a cutaway view of it this time that showed a bunch of suites because you know everyone on their your multi month trip to Mars you know you gotta have your own little hotel room and uh, it said i think uh, you know two to three people per room, so you know you might have to have a roommate big sacrifice when you're going to mars um but uh yeah yeah, so the design is slowly coming together, and I think one of the important things to stress about this presentation is uh he's clearly thinking about ways they're going to pay for it. One of the things that was important uh, that he showed was this concept of one of these things landing on the moon. So by shrinking down the design, making it a little more flexible, uh, he's clearly got his eye on other concepts. So if, if NASA ends up going back to the lunar surface and setting up a you know a base of some sort there, uh, SpaceX obviously would like to be a part of that and they would like to get paid to um, you know help develop a, a system that can do that. So we're just starting to see some of the practicalities come together but still a long ways off from eventually becoming reality but it's cool it's cool right
0: <laughs> and and he added almost as an afterthought oh yeah we can go point to point on earth like <laughs> what's the the sample trip he mentioned
1: I think it was uh, it was New York to Singapore in 39 minutes or 29 minutes? I can't believe I, 30, I can't remember.
0: 39 yeah. is what you put in the article. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, as soon as I saw that skyline of New York in the background and I imagine this giant rocket lifting off, I can just see all the red tape and regulatory framework, to, you know, piling up beside the rocket as tall as the rocket, practically. Um, that's pretty ambitious. And uh, I think that I think that would be the most complicated part of that is not that. It couldn't be done. It's just that uh, I think you have a hard time convincing people, one, to allow you to do that so close to a populated area and two, getting people to feel safe about it. You know, if I'm going to go to Singapore on a trip of some kind, I don't want to die. (laughs) So if I'm going to get on a rocket that goes to Singapore, I want to have a really uh, good feeling that that thing is going to be safe. So, uh, yeah, interesting.
0: Getting to Mars, no big deal. But getting from New York to, and it's Shanghai that you put in the article, by ah, the way. Yes, Shanghai. So, yeah. <laughs> so much so much better than Singapore uh, yeah. for, uh, for a 39-minute trip. That's the hard part. It's why we love him. It has to be said, though, that though it sometimes costs more and almost always takes longer, uh, SpaceX has a really good record of achieving what they set out to do.
1: Yep. Yep. I wouldn't put it past him that, you know, something like this is feasible in the in the far future. Like you said, a little more expensive and and ending up being longer than he's predicting. But, you know, if anybody can do it, it's them.
0: Take a look at this blog post from Jason. It was posted on September 29th at planetary.org, of course. And it has a terrific table where you uh, compare this new version of the concept to the previous one from a year ago and to other craft uh, like the Saturn V. It, It really is fascinating. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Matt. That's Jason Davis, digital editor for the Planetary Society. So you thought Australia already had a space agency, didn't you? So did I, till very recently. After all, it's a modern, industrialized nation, one of the first to put a satellite in orbit. But it wasn't till last week's International Astronautical Congress that the country stated its intent to create a central department for nationwide coordination and promotion of space development, assets, industry, and possibly even education. The International Astronautical Federation held the first Congress back in 1950, seven years before Sputnik 1 became the first artificial object in Earth orbit. This year it was hosted in Adelaide by the Space Industry Association of Australia. The association chose its past chair, Brett Biddington, to lead the effort as CEO. Brett is founder and principal of Biddington Research and a director of the Space Environment Research Center, He served for many years as an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force and is a member of the Order of Australia. I got bread on Skype the day after the week-long Congress ended. By the way, our own Bill Nye was there. He delivered a keynote address about the Lightsail 2 project, We'll talk with him about the Congress next week. Brett Biddington, welcome to Planetary Radio. A Good morning, I should say, because though it is late afternoon here, it is early morning Saturday for you, Saturday, September 30th, and you have just completed uh, what I understand from my colleagues who attended was a tremendously successful International Astronautical Congress.
2: Yes, Matt, and thanks certainly for talking to me. I think it's fair to say that IAC-17, certainly for the people who were there, was a a grand and happy occasion, and of course, from the point of view of of Australian space, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that it's an inflection point in this country's journey in space.
0: It certainly was wonderful timing for your nation to announce that it is going to form a space agency.
2: Indeed so. It's been a long time coming. Uh, In fact, we had a a half-hearted attempt at doing this back in the 1980s, and that didn't come to, 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 to success. But uh, I think this time the world has changed in so many different ways. Small satellites, uh, technology change, uh, cheaper to launch, all those sort of things mean that countries like Australia, small powers, medium powers can now uh, be genuine participants in, uh, in, in space as indeed can startups in countries such as Australia. And uh, in the last five years, there's been an absolute burgeoning of small companies all very, very keen, hustling and bustling to, to launch all sort of things.
0: I do want to talk more about that and what a space agency will mean for Australia. But uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, uh, get your thoughts about IAC and what some of the highlights were. I suppose we would have to start with what has uh, become now a uh, a two-year tradition of Elon Musk having a session that people almost literally run each, down, run each other down for to be able to attend.
2: Well, let me tell you that there was no running down this year. Um, <laughs> Good. We were very, very concerned about the behavior of some people who should have known better, actually, in Guadalajara. And so this year... It was a much more orderly and organised entrance into Musk's presentation. I would think about 3,000 people went to listen to him. Uh, the hall wasn't full, which is... We, it was full for our opening ceremony. Fascinating. Uh, that's, that's not to say that, of course, many others did not listen to him on uh, on the webcast through SpaceX website and, and other places. But uh, certainly... Um, those who were there, I think, were uh, very excited to hear uh, his plans for Mars.
0: What were some of the other uh, highlights, things that really stood out for you uh, at IAC? I assume that you had some opportunity to uh, to enjoy and attend sessions, in addition to being uh, the top person responsible for making it all a success.
2: Matt, I did not get to one session. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, that's my job was to uh, my job was to make sure that everybody who was uh, there uh, and attending had a fabulous time. I think the feedback we have is that uh, the opening ceremony was uh, indeed the word that was used was emotional. Uh, some of the uh, some of the Australians who attended said that it brought a tear to their eye and made them feel proud to be Australian. So I think it's fair to say that we probably got the opening ceremony right. Uh, The uh, welcome reception on the Monday evening, particularly the Europeans, many of them came up and said they'd never seen so many oysters in one place at the same time and (laughs) eaten so many. Uh, So we got the food right, um, at least at uh, at the welcome reception. It just continued through as a very, very happy, productive, friendly week. And I think that was the tone we tried to set Uh, And therefore, the conversations that were had both uh, within the sessions and increasingly and more importantly beyond them, the bilaterals around business to business, business to universities, those sorts of conversations coming back to me as being productive, positive, helpful, all of these sorts of very good words uh, mean to me that I think we, we hit the mark with this IAC and not just for Australia, but in fact, for the many people from around the world who attended Do you
0: know offhand how many nations, spacefaring and otherwise, had representatives at this Congress?
2: We had in the order of 70 nations. The reason I don't have final figures is that we had people actually register on the last day just to hear Musk. But we had in the order of 4,500 registrations, in the order of 70 or 72 or something like that nations represented, very large delegations from... The United States, as you would expect, uh, China, Japan, the European nations, Russia was very well represented. The surprise to to me was that of the four and a half thousand delegates, one third of them were Australian. Hmm. Um, I thought we, in the planning phase of this Congress that we would have about an 85-15 split. And in fact, it was more like a 65-35 split.
0: Well, that must have been especially gratifying. I I want to go back to your comment about the bilateral discussions that took place. Because while I am sure that uh, the attendees enjoyed the many sessions, it is also a fact, isn't it, that many people attend conferences like this, and specifically the IAC, because there is so much business that can get done.
2: Uh, I think that's right. Uh, The IAC is a changing animal. It continues to evolve When I first became involved, and that was uh, in the the first I attended was in 2012 in Naples. What I saw there was, I think, a whole lot less business, but the Global Networking Forum, which is the conference within the conference, in a sense, is becoming far more popular. And I think there's an opportunity now for the IAF to actually rethink its entire strategy for its Congress. Does this leave
0: you with any doubt that the time is now for space to come into its own as a place where people do business?
2: I think that we are seeing the conversation around space as an environment or a domain being normalized. The way that I describe this to, to, to friends is I draw a matrix and I have uh, five vertical lines, one representing each of the five domains of human activity, the sea, the land, the air, space, and cyber. They're the only places where people do work or do stuff. And then in the horizontal domains are the emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, advanced manufacturing, 3D printing, that sort of stuff, uh, big data analytics, and you, the list. that list can go on. Uh, the point being, of course, that many of the new companies that are working in these horizontals, they're domain agnostic. Hmm. Big data analytics and applies just as much in the land and the sea and the air as it does in the space domain. And so a challenge for a country like Australia as these countries start to emerge is we're not seeking so much to build a space vertical, but rather we're seeking to capture that part of the business of these horizontal companies that do stuff, have customers in the space domain. And that's a very different conversation than those conversations we've been used to in the past.
0: I wanna compliment you on that visualization of these five domains of human endeavor. That's really pretty fascinating. With that uh, one third of attendees being from the hosting nation, Australia, it certainly was not just a coincidence uh, but it was very, very good timing that this was uh, the place where the Australian government could make its announcement uh, that it's moving forward toward a space agency. And that is now, as I understand it, a firm commitment.
2: There's no, there's no question that the genie's out of the bottle. And I don't think it's going to be put back anytime soon. Now, what has happened is that technology change on the one hand has allowed nations, as I said earlier, like Australia, to become far more involved. Secondly, we are, as a nation, our government, I think, has been copying it from international partners for actually not quite living up to its responsibilities as a good citizen internationally. The Australian chair at many international conferences and congresses has been vacant and it should not have been for a long time. Hmm. The next point about that, of course, is we've now got a massively changing economy and industrial base. We've got state governments uh, closing down car industry. Well, the nation is shutting down its car industry. And we've got to find different sorts of employment for lots of people. And it's not going to be the jobs of the 20th century. It's going to be the jobs of the 21st century. And space has two particular aspects or elements in, in creating those jobs. One is there are new jobs in the domain itself. If you think of the industry as a whole, it's a $420-odd billion-a-year dollar industry. Australia is not even uh, playing at its weight. Uh, to the, this country's uh, share of global GDP is in, in less than 2%, but mm. our contribution to the space economy is orders of magnitude below that 2%, That mm. even just playing at weight. Uh, we should be aspiring to. So, there's a there's a huge untapped potential just there uh, uh, that we need to exploit. And there is a bit of a, a paradox
0: or a disconnect there because Australia is well known for its technical prowess, the quality of its universities and researchers, uh, but it does not seem as of yet to have been translated into that proportional representation that one might expect from. What is a first world nation like Australia?
2: Well, I think this comes to the fact that Australia's strategic interests uh, are fundamentally tied up in space. Initially, it was through the Woomera programs with the United Kingdom when we looked to London as our great and powerful ally in the 40s and 50s and that very rapid transition to the United States. But the programs that we support were very, very highly classified and sensitive. And so secrecy has always been uh, an issue in terms of uh, what we would aspire to do beyond the secret domain, the classified domain in national security. There's been a bifurcation, if you like. That has meant that people who have not known what's been happening in the strategic end of things have felt powerless, unloved, unresponded to by governments and so on. And governments have not really been, have not thought how to tell that story properly. There's not been a coherent narrative from the uh, national security right through to the the other domains. In the application domains that are unclassified, we have the geosciences of Australia, we have the Bureau of Meteorology, we have our scientific Commonwealth and scientific industrial research organisation, the national labs, if you will all with very well-established credentials nationally and internationally, including as great users of data from other people's satellites. What we've come to understand in the last five or six years is that we now have better articulated requirements for Earth observation that that, that the data that we've been used to getting from other sources no longer meets our requirements as well as it used to. Hmm. And so the time has come now to start to invest in our own Earth observation capabilities and indeed our own capabilities perhaps certainly from a national security perspective perspective for space observation as well, understanding what's happening in our space environment.
0: More in a minute from Brett Biddington about the just-completed International Astronautical Congress and plans for the Australian Space Agency. This is Planetary Radio.
3: Where did we come from? Are we alone in the cosmos? These are the questions at the core of our existence. And the secrets of the universe are out there, waiting to be discovered. But to find them, we have to go into space. We have to explore. This endeavor unites us. Space exploration truly brings out the best in us, encouraging people from all walks of life work together, to achieve a common goal, to know the cosmos and our place within it. This is why the Planetary Society exists. Our mission is to give you the power to advance space science and exploration. With your support, we sponsor innovative space technologies, inspire curious minds, and advocate for our future in space. We are the Planetary Society. Join us.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Brett Biddington is Chief Executive Officer for the just-completed 68th International Astronautical Congress. He's also a former chair of the Space Industry Association of Australia. We're talking with him about the announcement made by the Australian government at IAC that it has begun formation of the nation's first space agency. I want to ask you about what I assume are more than one, probably many small pockets of uh, success in Australia, and and specifically because you are a director of this center, the Space Environment Research Center, which I uh, looked at the website for, and there's some very good work uh, going on there. Is that the kind of work that you think a, an agency, a centralized national agency, might encourage?
2: I think the agency will do maybe three things. The first thing it'll do, is I think provide a point of coherence for the established organisations that do downstream processing for them then to be able to uh, roll up their requirements and with new money, not taking money out of existing pots, be able then to build a program of uh, satellite construction or design construction operation that meets a range of national requirements. And I think there'll be some dual-use aspects to that. So there'll be some military involvement and uh, national security involvement, as well as the agencies I've mentioned. That will also involve the states because the states are responsible for land management fundamentally, and they, of course, need access to this data as well. Uh, The next thing it'll do, I think, is start to pull together a coherent set of understandings uh, for STEM education.
0: Hmm.
2: There's no question at all that space is still a vector to get young men and women into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics.
0: True around the world.
2: True around the world, absolutely. Those horizontal emerging industries that I described earlier absolutely will only work if if there are men and women in them who are numerate, not just literate we are not producing enough men and women who are numerate in the Western world and in Australia included. I don't think it's a an add on. I think it's actually something that would be integral to this agency's mission. And what I see happening there is pretty quickly, we will see a small office funded probably in the May federal budget next year, maybe 10 or 15 people given the job of Getting the international piece sorted out quickly, getting a sort of a badge on the door and a place where it uh, says we're open for business, starting to encourage industries, giving uh, the little startups that we have now a, a place where they can call home. And at the same time, the next task will be to start to think about what the program looks like. What would you do first, second, third, fourth? Not projects. This has to be long-term, systematic, ongoing. There is a legislative aspect to this. I suspect there's a new Act of Parliament to be drawn up called something like the Australian Space Agency Act uh, so that this organisation has continuity, has life, has purpose uh, and can't be easily... Uh, simply pushed aside. So there's a whole lot of work to be done uh, in that first year. But my view is that in the 2019 May budget, we will start to see funds starting to flow through to initiate whatever program it is that we start to do. It's also worth noting that the opposition party, the Labor Party, has essentially uh, come out and said, it's about time, let's endorse this, let's do it. So if there's a change of government at our next election, which is due early in 2019, I would not expect this uh, announcement of a few days ago to uh, other than continue, which is great. So I'm pretty optimistic about this.
0: Do you see any potential for development of an independent launch
2: capability,
0: an Australian uh, booster uh, rocket?
2: I can tell you that yesterday... A signature was achieved in northern Australia with the Northern Territory Government to establish a small launch site near Gove, on the Gove Peninsula, a small company, Equatorial Launch Australia. There are several companies actually in Australia that are seeking to develop launch capability, some through building rockets, some through building the ground-based infrastructure, the launch infrastructure. I think that we will see... Uh, rockets being launched from Australia within the next five years. Hmm. The Department of Defence certainly is interested in responsive space capabilities, and that involves some degree of indigenous launch.
0: You've talked about some of the challenges that the nation has faced in this effort. Does Australia have certain advantages that might not uh, be present in other nations, perhaps in other hemispheres?
2: Well, I think there are several advantages Firstly, of course, the northern part of Australia is relatively close to the equator, 12 degrees south or thereabouts, so that's not bad. There are launch windows in a geographic sense that uh, won't offend neighbours if we uh, launch responsibly. Secondly, this country is, with its tiny population, responsible for 15% of the Earth's surface. So um, it's a no-brainer that we actually are big users of space-based data. And that's actually where we've placed our emphasis and our investments, after all, in the last many years. But as I said earlier, those requirements no longer fully met, so we now develop indigenous capability and become somewhat more self-reliant and at the same time, of course, have something to trade and something to contribute back to the international community in the civil domain, which is quite important so there's that advantage and then finally is the advantage of in the southern hemisphere when we look out we look through the disk of the Milky Way uh, and that's something that our northern hemispheric neighbours don't enjoy. This gives us some advantages from the point of view of astronomy, ground-based stations like the NASA facility at Tidbin near where I live in Canberra. Those opportunities of geography don't go away. Uh, we also of course are a uh, Five Eyes nation in the Asian region, from the point of view of sort of global security, I think that Australia will probably become more prominent as the United States and the Five Eyes community works out and resolves the relationship between, in particular, the United States and China Mm. over the next 10, 15, 20 years. This is not something we need to hurry. It's something that's going to evolve. Uh, Nobody wants, other than a very good and strong relationship between the great powers of the world that just takes time to to put into place. But Australia will play a part in it.
0: Are you personally excited about the direction that uh, things seem to be going in?
2: Absolutely. Firstly, one of the reasons we put a lot of effort into this Congress was, I guess some of us saw that the change was coming, we saw that the time was right. Uh, We persisted. It took us three years to win the bid, three years to deliver the conference. So I've been at this now for six years. And, of course, we've seen technology evolve in the ways that we anticipated six and seven and eight years ago. We've seen the geopolitical circumstances evolve. Uh, We've seen interest grow. We've seen the space environment, space debris management, especially in the low Earth orbits. Australia is very well placed to do this because uh, there are very few ground-based sensors in the, southern hem- in the Southern Hemisphere adding to a space surveillance system. And that means that there are gaps, that means that perturbations in orbits are lost and, uh, and it's important that if we can get a more, a more highly, a picture of higher fidelity of where particular objects are as they circle the Earth, that allows us then to think far more carefully and constructively about which object you might nudge or move, which is the idea of the work I'm involved with at Mount Stromlo in Canberra. Mm. Thinking about using laser pressure from Earth lasers to just nudge objects. Now that's okay for once, but you want to know what that nudge might mean in five or six or 700 orbits time. You might've made things worse for yourself. And you can only do this traffic, space traffic management issue in the low Earth orbits, indeed anywhere, as an international collaborative effort.
0: Brett, I think you have, uh, right at the end here, come up with could be the uh, topic for yet another discussion in the future on this uh, program, the Planetary Society. I don't know if you've heard about it, uh, the laser bees. Uh, concept that we've supported for uh, moving near-Earth objects around. This idea of uh, directing big laser beams at uh, objects in orbit around the Earth to uh, make sure bad things don't happen. I'm going to keep that in mind. We'll bring that up again. You will note that I waited until the very end of the conversation to ask you to pass along any gratitude you can to anyone you know involved with those big dishes that are not far from where you live who, uh, of course, had a movie made about them called The Dish, which I highly recommend, back in Apollo days, but also were the ones who brought us the grand finale of Cassini just a few days ago.
2: Yes. Uh, There was terrific media, uh, certainly in Australia and I suspect around the world, uh, about Cassini. The the Parkes radio telescope, which is the hero, as it were, of The Dish movie, uh, there's a little bit of poetic license in that movie, because actually the uh, the first the first TV signals were received at us in a much smaller dish at a place called Honeysuckle Creek uh, near Canberra, and then the task was passed to the bigger dish, which is a radio telescope primarily uh, at parks some hundreds of kilometres away. But the actual dish that took the first footprints uh, imagery is still in operation. It's been shifted down to, uh, to a site uh, at Tidbinbilla, and it's now used, among other things, by school students to, mm. uh, to learn. Again, it's part of sort of STEM outreach activity that uh, that is done on site, and uh, yeah, she's a grand old lady.
0: That is a great place for us to finish. I want to congratulate you again on the completion of uh, the 2017 uh, IAC, International Astronautical Congress, and and wish you and uh, all of your countrymen, a fair number of whom listen to this radio program, uh, a, a great future in space development.
2: Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to talk.
0: We have been talking with Brett Biddington. He was, I suppose still is, the CEO for the 68th International Astronautical Congress, just completed in Adelaide, Australia. He's the founder and principal of Biddington research and a director, as we mentioned, of the Space Environment Research Center, past chair of the Space Industry Association uh, in Australia, uh, adjunct professor at a couple of universities. He had a long and accomplished career as an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force and was admitted as a member of the Order of Australia in 2012. Oh, and we will also put up a link to uh, a paper that he uh, created in 2008 called Skin in the Game, Realizing Australia's National Interest in Space, to 2025, which uh, seems more timely than ever. Uh, We will move on now to a timely examination of the night sky with our friend Bruce Betts. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society is Bruce Betts, who has just written... Uh, just posted a great new blog post for all of you brand new eclipse chasers out there. Tell us about this uh, new piece. As
4: I and others around here wanted to become eclipse chasers, (laughs) uh, it's my guide, my one-stop shopping for where every total solar eclipse is from now through the 2020s, the end of the 2020s, and where where you would need to go and a little bit about path and uh, even a smidge on weather.
0: You and I need to be in Sydney, Australia in 2028, because <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That one passes over zillions of miles or kilometers of nothing and then goes yep. zap straight through the center of Sydney. Right over the center. Yep. <laughs> all right. All right. It's a date. All right. Well, we can do uh,
4: you know, Dallas in 2024 first, and then we'll, we'll do Australia in Sydney.
0: Well, I hope I make it to although both of those. The,
4: although the one, I, I guess I should work it into a random space fact, but I, I found a random space fact as I was researching. I derived from the uh, online maps. There is a point in northwestern Australia for an eclipse, a hybrid eclipse coming up, has one second of totality. <laughs> I, I think we should go there and just see what the heck that would be like.
0: Yeah, would you do that and just give me a call and tell me how it went? <laughs>
4: All right, we'll just do Sydney in
0: 2028. I'll book the hotel. So that's the update for the uh, what's coming up over the next more than 10 years. How about uh, this week? This week,
4: Saturn's in the evening sky uh, in the southwest, but the action still remains in the pre-dawn in terms of planets hanging out with each other. You got Venus and Mars. Venus over 100 times brighter than Mars at this point, but super bright Venus low in the east in the pre-dawn. And then right near it, and if you pick this up right after it uh, comes out, on October 5th, they're very close, but they stay stay close for days and weeks after that, uh, with Mars above and Venus below. And on October 17th, there's a crescent moon between the two of them, making for a lovely sight.
0: And I I want to alert people that the racing cars they hear in the background, that's the famous little old lady of Pasadena uh, going past the Planetary Society, I think.
4: It's the little old lady from From
0: Pasadena.
4: Pasadena.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. Except I thought she stuck to Colorado Boulevard. Apparently, she's moved a block south to Green Street.
4: Well, she likes to circle back.
0: <laughs> it's kind of a circle route. And,
4: uh, anyway, this week in space history, you may have heard of this, it's the 60th anniversary of Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite
0: in space. I'm so glad you brought that up, because we're not otherwise celebrating this anniversary, the beginning of the space age. Well, yay! <laughs> How's that? Uh, very nice, thank you. We
4: move on, do we have any uh, singers this
0: week? Not or this week. No, no that? singers, yeah. no celebrities. It's all up to you.
4: A space fact.
0: Oh, that's great. No no loss felt there at all.
4: Yeah right. Almost everything about a star. Pick a star, any star. Almost everything about it is determined by its initial mass, at least in basic uh, outline, including the such things as luminosity, so how bright it is, size, evolution, what it's going to end up as, lifespan, and its eventual fate, all pretty much you can figure out from its initial
0: mass. Wow, that is such a contrast with uh, so many humans that where a lot is determined by their final mass.
4: (laughs) (laughs) oh, oh. (laughs) You know, maybe we should study baby weights and and whether they correlate. Nah, never mind. (laughs) Put them on the main sequence. (laughs) Exactly. All right, we move on to trivia. And uh, we just had a flyby from uh, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft uh, flying by Earth on its way to the asteroid Bennu for a gravity assist that happened on September 22nd. And I asked you, over what continent was it
0: at closest approach to Earth? How would we do? Was it Antarctica? It was indeed. Then I am so happy for Brittany Blankenship, a first-time winner in Westland, Michigan, because she said she found this in, in Sky and Telescope, the magazine, closest approach 1252 Eastern time over Antarctica, when apparently the spacecraft was going over 30,000 kilometers or 19,000 miles per hour. Uh, so, Brittany, uh, as you've heard, you got it right. Congratulations. Yay! She is going to receive our collection of Cassini mission stuff, including a poster, the official uh, pin. It is such a cool pin for the grand finale of that mission, and a Cassini sticker. Also, a Chop Shop designed Planetary Society t-shirt, the uh, overlapping Mars and Earth. And a two hundred point telescope dot net astronomy account, uh, two hundred points worth a couple of hundred bucks American from that uh, nonprofit international uh, global network of uh, telescopes. That is quite a package. Uh, once again, Brittany, congrats! Yeah, you really put together quite the uh, quite the deal. Yeah, I should have cut out a couple of things. It <laughs> just it's like ah, oh. Brittany deserves it. You're absolutely right. Brian Mangold of uh, Maricopa, Arizona, if his back-of-the-envelope numbers are close, it robbed the Earth of about 70 nanometers per second in orbital velocity. Thief! (laughs) Stephen Coulter, Woodville, uh, Australia, he says it flew right over him. I guess uh, Woodville must be right outside of uh, Adelaide, Australia, where the IAC was. He didn't see anything, unfortunately, because of bad weather. I know there were some people who were hoping to, to catch a, a little bit of a flash from Osiris Rex. Uh, this from Randy De Pasquale in Marlton, New Jersey. He says that Osiris Rex flew close to Antarctica, not because, as most people thought, to fly out of the plane of the ecliptic uh, to get to uh, Bennu, uh, but because... That's the continent with the most scientists as a percentage of total population. <laughs> 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 and finally, from Mel Powell, who we hear from all the time in Sherman Oaks, California, could have been really dangerous. Spacecraft buzzes Antarctica. Someone yells duck, but there are no ducks. They're all penguins. Ah. And we're ready for the next
4: contest. I've got one that uh, I think is an easy one. So don't shout out the answer. In English. What does the Russian word Sputnik mean? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. That shouldn't
0: be too difficult. I think you're right. Uh, you've got... give, give people a little relaxing break for a change. Why not? And it's appropriate. You have until the 11th. That would be October 11th, Wednesday, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And we have a lot more artwork to give away. This time, it is a print from the great space artist, Michelle Rouche. Uh, Michelle has uh, a whole bunch of great work, but she's done this great series called Astro Girl, the Astro Girl series, and she takes famous women of the past, in this case Marilyn Monroe, puts them in a sort of 1950s spacesuit, in this case as well, on Mars. So it's Marilyn Monroe on Mars <laughs> from uh, Michelle Rouche's Astro Girl series, uh, a print, a fine print from her. Uh, you can uh, see more of Michelle's work at www.rouch.com. Www.rouch, uh, and she is uh, part of the International Association of Astronomical Artists, the IAAA, iAAA.org. You can uh, see work by uh, by Michelle and lots and lots of her colleagues at that site. Oh, and a Planetary Society t-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net account. Wow! <laughs> no.
4: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about a dad on a bicycle, or
0: what I like to call a popsicle. <laughs> Thank you, and good night. I think I saw that in highlights in the second grade, but I just came up with that. I just invented it. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt you did. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the director of science and technology and humor. For the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members, the ones down under and across our world. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies.